Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 25, Seeing the Light. In this episode, we continue with physical chemistry, this time looking at how light shining on chemical reactions can affect a reaction. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. Jonathan Swift, the early 18th century satirist, described the hero of his Gulliver's Travels story visiting the fictional city of Lagado, where scholars attempted obviously silly experiments, such as extracting sunbeams from cucumbers, running chemical reactions using light, or harnessing solar power may have been ridiculous fantasy in Swift's day, but a century later, not so much. Scientists in the 19th century realized that light wasn't an element as Lavoisier listed in his textbook in the late 18th century. Instead, they knew light was a form of energy. Thomas Young even showed that light was made of waves in 1801. What exactly was doing the waving? Well, that was another matter for late 1800s and early 1900s physics, but nonetheless, light was a vibrating form of energy. Way back in Episode 9... I mentioned the research Angelo Sala did in the early 17th century on silver nitrate, in that under strong light, this salt turns black. If you have used silver nitrate as a reagent in a chemistry laboratory and not washed your hands well afterwards, you can see the result on your skin. And by the 1790s, Elizabeth Fulham was doing experiments on light-induced patterns on metallicized cloth. In 1790, Joseph Priestley found that spirit of nitre, we call it now nitric acid, in sunlight formed a product which was nitrogen dioxide, a reddish gas. We will encounter more about nitrogen dioxide in environmental chemistry. Of course, from ancient times, people were putting chemicals on cloth and leaving them out in the sunlight to bleach them. Beer, a prehistoric chemical product, was known to go bad under influence of light. Clearly, light affected chemicals, and this branch of chemistry, which is now generally considered a division of physical chemistry, is called photochemistry. In the 19th century, one of the new photochemical techniques became a worldwide phenomenon, and that was photography, which is from Greek light writing. The effect of light on silver salts finally became a popular method of fixing an image permanently onto a surface. In the first method, invented by the 1830s, a layer of silver salts was applied to a metal plate. You expose the metal plate to a focused image, which requires decent optics, known certainly by the 1700s, of your chosen subject under bright illumination. The silver salts were not particularly sensitive to light at this stage of photography, so the exposure of the coated plate to the image might take a few minutes. 
Depending on how much light falls on the different areas of the metal plate, the silver salts decompose into metallic silver in different amounts. The more light, the more salt gives metallic silver. If your portrait was photographed in the early to mid 1800s, because of the exposure time, you might have to be clamped into place to prevent your movement and a blurry image. After the exposure to the image, the photographer treats the plate with chemicals to accelerate the breakdown of silver salts into silver, and this is called development. At the correct time in the development process, the plate now has a record of the optical image it originally saw, but recorded in a grayscale. Color photography was experimental through the beginning of the 20th century and didn't become popular till the middle of the 1900s. The first primitive photographic process, called heliography, was invented by a Frenchman, Nicephore Niepce, in 1826, but it wasn't reliable. Niepce partnered up with Louis Jacques Mondet Daguerre in 1829 to improve this primitive method. Niepce died in 1833, but Daguerre continued the research till he found what he considered a practical process to show the world in 1838. The system was unveiled in front of the Academie des Sciences and the Academie des Beaux Arts in August 1839. His scheme involved a mirror like silver coated sheet of copper metal sensitized to light with iodine vapor. Which made silver iodide a light sensitive salt. The image was recorded in a large wooden box with optics. The development process required mercury vapor and stabilized or fixed with sodium thiosulfate. The process seems simultaneously quaint and dangerous with toxic fumes and liquids. But it worked and made Daguerre famous for his daguerreotypes. Which in the coming decades spread around the world. The first known photograph, including a person, was from 1838, a scene taken at 8 a.m. from his window of the Boulevard du Temple. Close examination shows a shoe shiner on the sidewalk polishing a customer's shoes. Once the process of black and white photography spread, various methods to record the image appeared, whether on coated paper. Or coated glass plates, or other metal plates such as tintypes throughout the 19th century. We will talk about plastic film for photography later in the series. The search for reliable color photography began in about 1860, based on the theory of color mixing by James Clark Maxwell, published in 1855. He suggested taking black and white photographs through colored red, green, and blue filters. To see the final image, he suggested projecting the three images through the same filters on a screen. Thomas Sutton took what is known as the first color photograph of a multicolored tartan ribbon in 1861 using this suggestion, and it sort of worked. The problem was Victorian technology. The photosensitive salts of that era could not record red or green light properly. The filters themselves transmitted ultraviolet light that the salts did receive, so the red and green images were really ultraviolet images projected through red and green filters. So, yes, it was a color photograph of a sort, but not attuned to the human eye. 
It took some decades before a truly practical color method, the autochrome process, was perfected in 1904 by the brothers Auguste and Louis Lumière in France. For the autochrome process, transparent starch grains between 10 and 15 thousandths of a millimeter in diameter were extracted from starch suspensions and dyed into red, green, and violet batches, mixed and varnished onto glass plates in a hopefully random pattern. Carbon black, a powder of charcoal, was added to fill gaps between the grains. A roller squished the coatings flat, and then a photosensitive coating was added. Because of the bluish cast of the emulsion, a yellow filter corrected the exposure. The plates were 30 times less sensitive than typical Fillmore plates of the day, so there were long exposure times, so even a bright summer day required a second or two of exposure. They were expensive to make and buy, but they worked, and you can see autochrome images on the internet. Apparently, people in the early 20th century really did see things in color. Of course, not understanding the nature of chemical affinity nor what light was prevented a good theoretical treatment of photochemistry, so the practical effects were more important at this time. We shall talk more about the growing chemical industry in the 19th century in a future episode as well. For a good treatment of the chemical process of photography itself, look up Nicole Marie Witten's senior thesis from the University of South Carolina with the title, The Chemistry of Photography, May 5, 2016. Much of the chemical theory explained there is a product of 20th century understanding and not yet understood at the end of the 19th century. Another interesting photochemical phenomenon was light acting like a catalyst. For example, a small amount of light could ignite a mixture of gases hydrogen and chlorine to explode. But leaving the same mixture of hydrogen and chlorine in the dark meant the gases would remain unreacted. Gay-Lussac and Thénard first researched this topic around 1809. But how could this be? Our electrochemist buddy Walter Nernst figured out the explanation in 1918. All you need is a tiny bit of light to cleave the diatomic chlorine molecule into two chlorine atoms. A chlorine atom by itself is highly reactive, so it grabs hydrogen atoms off a diatomic hydrogen molecule. This synthesizes a hydrogen chloride molecule, but still leaves one hydrogen atom left over, which grabs a chlorine atom from a chlorine molecule. The process continues grabbing atoms from diatomic molecules and on and on. The light that started the whole scheme runs a photochemical so-called chain reaction leading to an explosion. By 1843, William Draper, an English-born American chemist and photographer, the first person to take a photograph of the moon, found that you can use a chemical reaction to measure the quantity of light assuming that the photochemical action is proportional to the amount of light-sensitive compound. Later in the century, it was found that the amount of light absorbed by a compound has a proportional effect on a reaction. Much of this research was done by Robert Bunsen, whom we already met for spectroscopy, and a colleague, Henry Roscoe. 
Organic chemists began finding photochemical reactions as well. One organic compound, santonin, which is found in parts of the Artemisia species of plants and used as a medicine, was discovered to change color from white to yellow under influence of sunlight, and then its crystals burst, as reported by German chemist Hermann Traumsdorf in 1834. He found that shorter wavelengths of light, that is, blue and violet, caused the reaction, but not the longer wavelengths of green, yellow, or red, probably the first study of wavelength dependency of photochemistry. A full chemical characterization of the compound itself wasn't possible till the late 1880s, and a variety of other photoreactions were found throughout the 1800s. The biochemical relationship between light and plants in the late 18th through the 19th centuries was intensely studied as well. A Swiss researcher, Theodore de Saussure, studied the relationship between light and plant growth in the years 1797 to 1804. He found that plants in sunlight extract carbon dioxide from the air, but that extra carbon dioxide in the air, which helps plants grow in the sun, hurts plant growth at dark. We shall revisit de Saussure when we talk about environmental chemistry. Then the question became, do all parts of the solar spectrum help plants grow? Research by F.W. Draper in 1845 showed that yellow light helped plants grow, but blue light not so much. The active green portion of plant leaves was named chlorophyll, and it took until 1879 when Felix Hoppe Sailor was able to crystallize chlorophyll for detailed study. We have examined most of 19th century physical chemistry by this point in our history, including electrochemistry, photochemistry, thermodynamics, chemical kinetics, and the so-called colligative properties, though I haven't named them as such yet. The term colligative properties was coined by Wilhelm Ostwald in 1891 and comes from Latin bound together. Colligative properties depend on the concentration of solute in solution, that is, the contaminant or smaller component of a solution. We've encountered freezing point depression, osmotic pressure, and Raoult's law already. The other colligative property is boiling point elevation. Imagine a pure solvent such as water. At one atmosphere pressure, its boiling point is 100 degrees Celsius. What if we toss in some sugar or salt to make a solution? For a pure solvent, such as water, we know from kinetic gas theory that at the boiling temperature, some, but not all, molecules will have sufficient energy and speed to escape from the liquid. If we add sugar to the water, now we have other molecules floating around among the water molecules. Some of those sugar molecules will be at the surface of the water, and they will block the water molecules from escaping. Hence, we have to heat the water hotter to give the water molecules enough energy to blast their way past the sugar molecules blocking their path. That means that the boiling temperature of a solution is higher than the pure solvent. 
It also means we can estimate the concentration of a solute in solution based on the amount the boiling point is raised. In this way, it is something like freezing point depression. We can also consider what happens on the microscopic scale for freezing point depression. At the freezing point, a liquid begins to crystallize into a solid. For water, that temperature at one atmosphere pressure is zero degrees Celsius. Now, suppose we add some sugar to the water. The molecules trying to fit nicely together into a regular crystal structure will have difficulty because of the sugar molecules blocking their path. There is more entropy, more disorder in the solution because of the sugar molecules. So you have to lower the temperature even more to get the water molecules arranged nicely into a crystal structure. By the late 19th century, physical chemistry was intimately bound up with theoretical chemistry as we have seen, with a variety of mathematical models and equations that began to tie all those disconnected observations of chemical compounds and reactions together. In the first issue of Zeitschrift für Physikalische Chemie, in the beginning of 1887, Ostwald himself wrote that physical chemistry is not just a branch on, but the blossom of the tree of knowledge. And still, chemists had no idea what atoms were, what made atoms of one element different from another element, or what was chemical affinity, what held atoms together into molecules. It was all very frustrating for the chemist of the year 1900. The discovery of X-rays in 1895, of radioactivity on March 1, 1896, and the discovery of the electron in 1897 helped lead to quantum mechanics, quantum chemistry, and the structure of atoms, those supposedly uncuttable, ultimately small objects. That will be the topic of future episodes. For now, we remain in the 19th century, looking at other developments in the chemical world. In our next episode, we start to look at how the early chemical industry developed in the 19th century. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.